Welcome to the Mindful Leadership Podcast. How do we navigate through all the noise, distractions and pressures to make thoughtful conscious decisions that are better for us, our people, our customers and our organizations? How do we know if we're busy and effective or just too busy to be effective? In this podcast, we talk to leaders who share their stories about challenging existing paradigms and doing different things differently. I'm your host Shahana Banerjee, founder and CEO of Just Human, Not Resources, on a mission to humanize the future of work. In this episode, we talk to Kevin Harley, former CHRO of Illumina and founder and president of Wine Springs Consulting, a leader who truly sees you, roots for you, and has your best interests at heart. Kevin, I'm so thrilled and beyond excited to have you join our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning. We met in Singapore, was it more than a decade ago? We've connected more recently. Who knew that two conversations a decade apart yeah. <laughs> would and, have and, such an impact in Blanders here? And continent away, you know? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. I would love to know more about your story, the people, the influences and the experiences that have shaped you and your leadership. Well, well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate that. I grew up in New York City and specifically I grew up in in the Bronx. It's a tough place to grow up, but nonetheless, a place that um, gives you an early view of life and absolutely, New York City is a global melting pot, so exposure to cultures from all over the world. My most profound influences were my, my family, and in particular, uh, my mom. Um, you know, both my parents were sort of education-focused and uh, very focused on making sure that their children uh, did as well as they could. Uh, growing up in the Bronx in, in a public housing project is not uh, the easiest thing to do. And there were seven kids and a total of nine people. Um, my passion for science and learning has always been something that's been there. And I was fortunate in that um, my mom was one of those people who identified very easily the talents and abilities of all of her children individually. And she would nurture those talents. Uh, she was an exceptionally, exceptionally bright woman, an exceptionally talented person. She did everything she could to make sure that she saw the capacity of each child and nurtured it to the greatest and best of its ability and potential. That's leadership right there. Yes. And then your love for science landed you into HR. How did that happen? Yeah, it was... <laughs> It was an interesting journey. Sometimes good can come from places that you least expect it. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking back to being when I was a young youngster in New York City, shopping for something. I probably was 15, 16 years old. And there was this man following me in the, in the department store. And he was an, he was an, obviously an employee of the store. And I thought, okay, yeah, he thinks because I'm a black kid, a teenager, I'm probably going to try to steal something. Yeah, so my defense is... You know, went up. Eventually, he meanders over to me, and I was expecting the sort of, the, you know, what do you got there stuff. It's not what he did. Mm. He's, he said to me, So, are you in school? And I looked at him like, 
Yeah, 16 years old, of course you're gonna be in school. I said, well, yeah. He said, he said to me, that's very good. That's very good. Said, Make sure you stay in school. He said, what do you wanna be when you grow up? I said, I said, I think I wanna be uh, a veterinarian. And he said, that's very good, that's very good. So my guard, my defenses came down a little bit. So he wasn't the guy who was gonna accuse me of stealing. He took his right or left forearm, he rolled up his sleeve, and he showed me a series of numbers. And he said, do you know what those are? And I knew, because going up in New York, uh, there's a large Jewish population, and I, I knew those were, those were concentration camp tattoos. Mm-hmm. And they were green. Mm. And he said, when I was your age, I wanted to be, I, you know, forgive me, I don't remember what he said he wanted to be. Mm. But he said, um, instead I was taken to the camps. Wow. And he said, I lost everyone. And he said, my wife lost everyone except, I think he said, an aunt. But we came to America. And he said, in America, you can be anything you want to be, he said. He said, so whatever you do, stay in school. You seem like a, a bright young man. Stay in school. And you can become that veterinarian. Wow. And, and it was profound. And, it, and he, he, didn't, he didn't know me from anywhere. And he just wanted to come. And he was looking at me. And he was assessing me as a person from afar, a young kid. And he could relate to me, even though he was, he was European and Jewish, I was American and Black. He could relate to me based on age. And it must have been something he saw in me that reminded him of himself. A powerful lesson. And even though it happened so many decades ago, mm-hmm. it's still that's on your mind. That's the impact he had. Absolutely. It was, it was huge. And it was, it was one of those things where he was alive, he survived. He didn't spend any time and energy on the bitterness of the atrocities in the Holocaust. Right. He was focused on looking forward and he wanted to do what he could to instill in some young kid who he never saw. I mean, I never saw the man after that, um, that you could, you could achieve everything in life you wanted if you work hard enough to stay in school. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, um, you know, there were lots of civil rights challenges back then, and he probably, would, that's his way of telling me, don't give up, young man, don't ever give up. What a powerful and profound lesson. In school, undergraduate, my major was um, pre-med, pre-vet. End of my sophomore year, beginning of my junior year, I started working in a lab, a biopsychology lab, a physiological research lab. And I hated it. I still have had and have a passion for science, but I didn't like the fact that it was disconnected from people. So you know, I did what any other 19-year-old does. I panicked. <clears throat> and I said, what am I going to do now? I want to do this. And so what I did was I took some business classes, uh, finished the degree, obviously, but I took some business classes and started focusing on behavioral peace uh, and was struck by it and was fascinated by it and enjoyed it. So by the time I graduated, 
was um, you know, I had a degree in uh, physiological psychology or biopsychology, um, and I had all these business classes in behavioral organization behavior and, and business law. So I did a little research and I found out, well, what do the leaders of companies, COOs and CEOs, what's their most common experience? And it turned out it was being junior military officers. I'm like, that's interesting. And so my best friend, still today, my lifelong best friend and my college roommate at the time uh, was going into the Navy aviation program. So Navy, Navy pilot. And I thought, well, maybe I should become a junior military officer, get that experience, get an MBA, come out and then go into business and focus on uh, HR. Talk a little bit about how that experience, you know, with the military, because we talk about career accelerators. Mm -hmm. That's certainly one of those crucible experiences. You're right. It gives a young person the opportunity to develop leadership skill. It requires that you actually exercise leadership skill in order for you to be successful. Right. Um, And so you go through the training, the officer candidate training, then you go through the voluminous amount of secondary education. Most of it's around technologies, strategies, um, and leadership. Leadership is the core. So my military experience at a young age gave me an opportunity to work with uh, men, uh, some of whom twice my age, all of whom from different backgrounds and minds. I learned at an early age that the best way to be successful wasn't to be sort of directive, it was to be inclusive. I learned that in practical terms as a young naval officer. There was a time when I remember we were at sea and the second in charge of my division, the division I was responsible for, I got word was very upset and I didn't understand why, why is he upset? And so once I got off watch, I went down to see him and I said, hey, chief, what's, what's the matter? And he, he looked at me and he said, you really don't know, do you? And I went, okay, this must be obviously about me. And I was like, <laughs> No, I don't know. He goes, my job is to make sure that I take this division and we execute what directions you, the executive officer, the commanding officer, give us. You're telling all the sailors what they want to do, what they need to do, how they need to do it. You're giving them specific instructions. That's my area of expertise. So if you don't need me here, what's the purpose of me being here? And I was stunned because I, I thought, you know, he and I were a team and that I absolutely knew that his job was the execution and implementation. He had expertise that I would never have. He was heck mentoring me. And the fact that he felt that way made me step back and realize, okay, so he is also a leader and I need to make sure that I embolden and empower him as a leader. And it was a, it was a painful lesson out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, but it was a life lesson that I took with me. Yeah. And what a great lesson to learn early in your career, right? Mm-hmm. Not to micromanage and not to, to have clear division of responsibilities and empower your team to exactly. do what they need to do while you provide more of the direction. Exactly. And I, here I'm thinking, I'm empowering the team, but not realizing empowering a team is a multifaceted, multidimensional thing. And, you know, Microman, I, I never even conceived myself as being a micromanager, but that's what I was doing. Right. And the it, it was it was an incredibly eye-opening thing, and it and also spoke to the human aspect of leadership, right? That 
if you have good people on your team, if you have a good construct, they're going to be, they're going to take it very personal in terms of their responsibility to achieve and attain the highest level of performance. They've got a, an emotional vested interest in success. And never, and I learned never, ever diminish that and always be important, always, always importantly understand why they love their job. Figure out what your people love and try to create an environment that allows them to attain that. That is such a great story. And it's really interesting. I suppose that is your superpower in some ways, right? Your superpower and your gift. The fact that you can walk into a room and make someone feel seen, make someone feel heard, make them feel like you have their best interests at heart, that you have their back, that you're rooting for them, Mm -hmm. which in the interaction that we have over a decade ago, that's what I remember from it. And so that is rare. So tell me more about why is it important to you that a person interacting with you feels that way? Well, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I really appreciate that. I, I guess I have an innate desire to develop other people. My charter as a leader was, I'm here to facilitate your success. I'll be successful if you guys are successful. And so when things go well, you guys are going to get the credit. When things don't go well and there's failure, I take responsibility for the failure. That's my belief system. If you're going to be blessed with the responsibility of leadership, then you absolutely need to be willing to hold yourself accountable for successes and its failures. Yeah. That's actually so fascinating because what is leadership about at the end of the day? And I think um, many people get into leadership for perhaps not quite the right reason. And leadership is fundamentally about service. Yes which is, I think, a little bit of what you're sharing, that, you know, the importance of not putting yourself first, (laughs) but putting your people first and doing what is necessary to help them thrive and help them blossom. A couple of colleagues of mine, Anne and Al, they talk about this concept of being for, which is all about being an advocate for having your team members back it's about trusting them, empowering them, you know, being there for them, really trusting people and having their back, taking a chance on them. Absolutely. And, and taking a chance on somebody is probably the most powerful way in which you can embolden a team. You try to set people up for success. I've learned that you don't put someone in a situation where the chances of their failure are clear and outweigh their chances of success. Right. Because you're not helping that person. Yeah, You put people in positions of possible success where you, they demonstrated a capacity. You understand that you or some of your subordinates who will be working with them are in position to be able to facilitate the accomplishment of that objective. Yeah, uh, that is such an important point, especially when it comes to diverse team members. There is a plethora of glass cliff or Trojan horse assignments, which look good on paper, but which are not set up for success. That's a great segue to talk a little bit about mindful leadership. It's the leadership where, you know, you're questioning your automaticity. Through your career, I'm sure there are so many examples where you've had to question existing paradigms in order to do things differently that led to better outcomes. So could you talk about perhaps a couple of areas where, you know, you've had to do that? It was when I was working at Baxter Healthcare. 
there was a hurricane bearing down on the island of Puerto Rico. And we had many thousands of employees there. And it was one of our hubs in terms of the cardiovascular group. And so like any major company, when you've got something like that, the company looks at the people in that location and says, okay, what preparation has been taken? Where are we? Are we prepared to deal with this? This is clearly going to be a very serious, uh, you know, weather event. And the noise that was coming back from the island was everything is okay. All the other groups were telling the, the heads in Chicago, everything's fine. Our people were telling us this is a very serious and dangerous situation, and I don't think we're preparing well enough as an organization. So me and my my colleague went to our leadership. We tried to convince them that we need to do some things differently than what's been done. This isn't situation is normal, and the people on the island are very, very concerned. And they kept coming back to us telling us, that's not what we're hearing, guys. And we kept saying, Trust me, they're telling you what they think you want to hear based on historical practices. Uh, mm. And it was an exercise in influence. The good news was we were able to convince our group head and our head of uh, global operations that we wanted to do something different and put some things in place. And so what happened was they ended up sitting with the CEO of Baxter and the whole executive staff there, and they pitched our story and they got the pushback that you would expect and then they leveraged their credibility and got the head of baxter to say okay fine you guys do what you're going to do and you know we'll see what happens and the expectation in deerfield was in chicago was that these guys are kind of doing something beyond what they should be doing make a real long story short hurricane george's was one of the most catastrophic hurricanes that had ever hit the island of puerto rico and it was absolutely devastating and what we had done was we had set up all these contingencies. We had in Miami, we had a barge set up fully loaded with portable generators before the hurricane even hit that we knew it was going to be able to ship out as soon as the hurricane cleared. We had made arrangements with the bank, the Baxter Credit Union, to give signature loans to people, no credit check, to make sure that if they needed to take a loan, they could take the loan and Baxter Credit Union would give them that loan. We made arrangements for tarps. We made arrangements for, we purchased extra food for our cafeteria services because we wanted to make sure that if we could, if we needed to create a portable kitchen, we could do that. We set up a uh, emergency response team that was specifically the facilities made emergency response team who could go in and real time repair any kind of damages regarding uh, warehousing areas and other areas where product could be destroyed by uh, weather-related damage. All that was done before the hurricane even hit. And it all cost money, as you can imagine, but it was absolutely needed. And as soon as it hit, everyone in Chicago called and they kept saying, how did you guys know? And we said, because our relationship with our people is based on trust, not history. And we were able to influence a massive organization to give us the license to do that. And so what happened was once we were in the implementation phase, the rest of the company's mm. operations on the island sort of piggybacked on our operations and we scaled it to support the entire island. And I remember we were the first non-military aircraft to land on the island of Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Wow. And the plane was loaded with all kinds of supplies and emergency equipment that we, we had offloaded as well. 
but it also impacted the people there significantly right that the fact yes. that their voice was heard exactly and that somebody trusted them enough to have uh, you know created all these plans mm-hmm. right that helped them uh, is significant there's one story i'd like to share we went to one of our supervisors homes long term 20 year employee and he and his wife were there and the place was just devastated no roof the roof was completely gone and he was one of the people who we were having a talk brought so they could cover their property at least the whole house was filled with mud and he said i can't believe you're here on the ground in front of me yeah. and we said of course we're here we care you you're our people and and it was and he started weeping and then you had the opportunity to go back to puerto rico sometime mm-hmm. later right it did one of the supervisors who was responsible for security was part of that team that I talked about sort of rapid response team and he stayed at the facilities during the height of the hurricane away from his family wow we recognized him and gave him a special award for his courage he invited me to see his family I was able to go and go to his small apartment and visit his wife I thanked her for her support and I told her how much we we appreciated that. When I left, I had gotten feedback once I got back home that um his family was really impressed by how normal I was. <laughs> and, and I was okay. okay. I, I grew up in an environment not too dissimilar than the one they were in. So it wasn't a foreign experience for me. It was look, I grew up with nine people in an apartment with one bathroom so this this resonates so much with me because you know we have been conducting listening labs where we invite people from different walks of life to come and share their uh, day at work with us the times then when they feel you know excited elated and have that sense of achievement and the times which are soul crushing Mm-hmm. and interestingly you know of course they talk about their leaders the kind that helped them thrive and the kind that don't and one of the key things that they talk about is their leaders trusting them listening being open to hearing news whether good or bad and willing to take a chance on them in this particular situation the fact that you did that help at such a crucial point of time in their lives was so critical i'm very very proud of that for me that 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 is a um, searing life experience that tangibly affected the quality of people's lives and it was one of those things where we didn't even think about it i and my colleague were willing to risk our sort of credibility capital on doing the right thing we knew there was quote unquote political risk to doing this and pushing this as hard as we right. did and we were admonished for it so what happened was you had a cascade of trust right we trusted the people on the island of puerto rico our operational and executive leadership trusted us and they were able to convince harry kramer and the ceo and and the rest of the executive staff of baxter to do this and it was if that chain of confidence wasn't there we would have never been able to influence right them. true leadership is one that comes through in a crisis right mm. and so this was truly an example of that 
must talk about inclusion. And I think it's a you know, topic that's close to both of our hearts. Absolutely. And I think both of us have been in situations we are the first, the other, the only in many, many rooms in many, many places. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know a little bit about what were some of the most challenging aspects of that, as well as how did you navigate some of this as you went through your career? Many, many stories, but I'll, I'll share a couple. Baxter Healthcare started a diversity and inclusion program decades ago. And what they did was they brought in people from all over the world who were going to be their designated diversity, uh, I forgot the term we use, whether it was diversity liaison or something like that. Basically, who's going to be running, who would appoint people in a diversity initiative around the world. We had a facilitator in, it was a multi-day program, and we have being trained and assessed and everything. I remember the time when the facilitator started talking about some of the underlying fears people had, diverse people. And in the African-American community, one of the greatest drivers of that underlying fear and insecurity is the perception that we're dumb. Intellectually, we are not as capable and that we need the hand of others, particularly of white America, to accomplish it. And so, you know, you can imagine this room of 50 plus people, you know, diverse and what have you. And facilitator asked, how many people in this room have ever had that thought, have that thought, or continue to have that thought? Every African-American person in that room and, and a number of uh, Hispanic Americans raised their hand. It was almost an audible gasp in the room where the white participants were looking and they were going, that's impossible. It's... It's, it's you, it's that person, he's a Harvard grad, why, why? They, didn't understand. They, they didn't understand. To try to help people understand, he, sh he showed this video of sort of where this comes from, this societal, systemic sort of underlying current of pernicious diminution of self-worth. And it was about kindergarten children and they talk, they ask them questions about could they or could they not do things and, and why they couldn't do things. And they were talking about how they weren't smart enough. And it was a life lesson for many of the people in the room. But the discussion was about the burdens, the unspoken burdens, the self-imposed psychological burdens and restrictions. And then the awareness can help others understand that these are some of the things that affect people's behavior as you're interacting with them that may or may not make sense. It's such an important lesson for leaders as well, though, which is that when you have diversity on your team and each person has really different needs in terms of what they expect from you mm -hmm. and what they need from you to be able to thrive and do well. So that's such an important point to understand as well for leaders. And so when you look at yourself as a leader of diverse teams, how were you able to sort of overcome this challenge? Inclusion, one of the things that I, I often try to do was I often try to understanding the abilities and skills of the people that are around you and give them a situation where they can exercise that ability and that talent for a positive outcome. And so if you're dealing with a diverse team, what you want to do is regardless of ethnicity, race, national origin, whatever the case may be, you identify individuals who have the ability to make an impact beyond what is sort of defined as their role. And then in some instances where you, where you have people who are diverse on the team, who you can recognize sort of that self-regulating behavior that happens is the courage that you can impart on them by 
advocacy, by support, public proclamation of your confidence in it, making sure that what happens is that you can put them in positions of success, then you can advocate their success, and you can articulate your expectation of their success. And then what that does is that emboldens them and relinquishes them of that self-imposed burden, and then they move forward in ways that helps them. Uh, but you make sure that you do it across the board, not just targeting sort of diverse people, but you target individuals because talent is diverse. Thank you for sharing that. That you know makes so much sense. You know, is there perhaps another example of just like we talked about mindful leadership in mindful inclusion, questioning the status quo, questioning existing paradigms, and doing things differently to achieve a better outcome? Because if any space is ripe for it, it is certainly the space of equity and inclusion, where there is a need for really busting some old paradigms and, you know, trying something new. Talk about gender-based inclusion. I was in an organization, and one of the things that we were doing were, was developing a succession strategy. I want somebody who's intimately familiar with the organization's personalities, somebody who understands sort of the underlying issues associated with where we are from a succession strategy, culturally, organizationally, behavioral. And I want someone who's competent, who won't discredit the effort by virtue of their lack of accomplishment. And I had someone on the team who had that. And so I tasked this person to be the, the brain trust to put this together. The expectation was that, well, Kevin, you're the one who has the sort of expertise and whatever and the relationships with the executives and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, but I'll never forget this conversation. This person is better than me at this. That's what I said. I said that to the CEO. I said, this person is better than me at this. And I was, okay. And they were. And they put together this program that was extraordinary. Just extraordinary. I made a presentation to the board of directors. Here's our overall succession strategy. Here's our timeline. Here's this, here's that. Here's how our data compares to peer group data in terms of how are our execs stack up in terms of the skill sets and their potential. And it was just a remarkably eloquent process. This person is now vice president of talent. I, I know how much that experience and other experiences meant to that person where it lifted them up. And um, I'm just remarkably proud of her. Uh, but that's this one example. That's, that's such a great example. There are so many more questions, but what we've tried to do is hopefully condense some of them into a rapid fire section. Okay. <laughs> are you ready? Okay. <laughs> so what was your first job ever? Ever. My first ever. job ever was as a 13-year-old kid in New York City youth organization. I was a youth counselor. Basically, I, I babysat uh, kids in day camp as a 13-year-old uh, in New York City. And it was a jobs work program. What they, they had a program in New York City where it kept uh, young kids off the street during the summer. And so we were paid uh, $33.69 every two weeks. So that is leadership training that you actually got paid for. I got paid for it as a 13-year-old. <laughs> So I'd love to know, you've worked with many inspiring leaders through your mm -hmm. career. 
Is there one who stands out and an advice that they shared with you that stands out? Mm, gosh, you're right. There's so many of them. I'll share one that's topical and it's about role modeling. I was promoted to a director level. I remember talking to the, the group vice president of HR and they were telling, telling me about how I was going to be now a role model for so many people. And I kind of said, oh, you know, well, I'm, I, I just want to do my job. I, I want to, you know, make the best impact by being competent. And she told me, she said, you're going to be a role model whether you want to be or not. People are going to look up to you. People are going to see you. People are going to be inspired by you. And they're going to be influenced by you by virtue of your position. You don't have a choice, she said. I think it's something that's perhaps not as well understood that when you are the only mm -hmm. on a leadership team, on an executive team, whatever team it may be, it comes with the expectations, not just your own, not just your leadership teams, but of so many others. You feel, I think, the weight of the expectations. Absolutely. Absolutely. You do feel that, that, the need to almost represent, even though that burden is not yours to bear. Exactly. But it's hard to, I think, separate yourself mm -hmm. from not doing that, which I think is hard, I think, for people who haven't been in that position to understand. I was the, at that time, the only diverse person on the executive staff that I represented for not just African-Americans, but for Indian Americans and Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans, and in fact, people living in the other parts of the world who are diverse locations. There was symbolism in, in my presence and influence. I took that very, very uh, seriously and it was, it was humbling. What is one piece of advice, you know, that you, that has helped you in your career? And what's one piece of advice that you would share to all our listeners who are looking for advice in terms of how to navigate their careers? Limiting it to one is kind of tough. It's to be authentic. And I, I would say that to the people, you know, who are listening to this. Things can be difficult and challenging. Business is a very competitive environment. There are many people who would and will advocate for you there are many people who are going to undermine you mm. for a whole bunch of reasons. But if you stay consistent, you're authentic. You don't compromise your integrity. What happens is you become very, very solid and very, very dependable in terms of being an influence, a predictable, positive influence. Mm. The only message I would leave is sort of an overarching message of always try to keep things in perspective. I know when I was actively, aggressively managing my career, one of the things that sometimes I lost was perspective and context of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm. And I was talking to a young, not young, not, he, he'd be flattered if I said he's young. I was talking to a, a, a mentee of, of mine and he was talking about how he's at a new place now because he's comfortable with where he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it and what he's good at and what he's not good at. And he doesn't get offended or rattled or mm. dislodged if he doesn't do certain things to prove he's capable. 
Right. There's so much energy around. I got to prove that. I, and he was, I don't worry about that anymore. And if somebody doesn't understand that or doesn't believe that, well, that's more their issue than mine, but I've got a track record of accomplishment and I'm going to continue to build on that track record of accomplishments. And he said, it's freeing. And he said, I wish I learned that lesson earlier. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so very much You're for welcome. joining us and sharing your experiences with our listeners today. Oh, my, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you and, you know, giving me a chance to share stories is kind of fun, but, uh, you know, you're such a wonderful host and, and uh, your program is something that is a, is a treasure. So thank you for giving me the chance to share. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>